This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is Peter. And this is Tom. And you're listening to History Teachers Talking Podcast. Now part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. All right, this is Peter Zavlaki and Thomas Reska, and welcome back to our podcast. Uh, Tommy, what do we got today? Well, today we're going to be looking at a, um, a festival that was uh, regarded as basically like a pivotal moment, right, in uh, music history, as well as a big moment in uh, the counterculture generation. So we're going to be looking at the 1969 Woodstock, but we're also going to talk about some of the other Woodstocks that took place after that and... I guess the infamous Woodstock 99 that we can shed a little bit of light on because we were actually alive for that one. And then the yeah. idea of Woodstock 50, which never came to pass and why that happened. So that's what we're looking at a little bit on, on Woodstock today and just why it was what it was and why it's still talked about today and why there really were so many attempts to have another festival like that later on. Although it technically kind of failed for the people that organized it and it took them like a decade and a half to get their money back but we'll get to that today well it was a whole bunch of yeah i mean there's yeah, so yeah, much yeah. but i guess the message right well, because you have to understand this is 1969 right the countries and we're deep into vietnam right a lot of young people are opposed to the war at this time you have the civil rights era movement going on a lot of civil unrest like protests let's look back at our podcast and we talked about 1968 right that was a long time ago right that crazy year yeah. and um it was really an opportunity for people to escape into music right that spread the idea of like peace and unity all that stuff which people really into i don't get it i'll be honest I'm, we were talking about this a little bit before i'm not mocking woodstock i don't think i would have gone if i was alive at that time not because of any particular like ideology reason it's just man that's just a lot of people in one place and yeah i don't know how i feel about being around so many people <laughs> yeah like 40 400 000 people in, in the rain and stuff like that i think i will mention at some point my uncle tried to go my uncle richie actually tried to go to the, to woodstock he started driving to that area but he then that he was said, his first I, mistake he started driving it, well he said driving in, in the traffic down. was so bad they just got out waited for a while then turned around and got back but they were toward i guess going towards the farm right where it was and yep. they're just like now forget it and then it wasn't you know, there were thousands of people that that happened to they just, oh yeah you know it just wasn't going to happen because it became much bigger than what anyone realized. And it's still, it's just like, it's a synonymous event. People, you mentioned Woodstock, whether you're someone like me, who's like, okay, Woodstock, but at least I know what it is. And it might not have been for me or my type of thing, but it's an interesting story without that. Yeah. And it actually is included in textbooks all the time. Oh yeah. Yeah. When you talk about culture and counterculture and and it kind of is rolled into chapters of Vietnam. I was actually looking through, Uh, like I looked at three or four different textbooks today and all of them roll this event into the Vietnam War chapter as like a culture and counterculture thing. And you touched upon this a little bit, this idea of counterculture. It was basically a movement that was made up of mostly white middle-class college youths, right? Mm-hmm. And they had grown disillusioned with the war in Vietnam and basically any form of injustice in America during the 60s, such as civil rights or lack thereof. And instead of challenging the system, they kind of turned their backs on traditional America and it tried to establish this like whole new society based on peace and love. Anyway, the heyday was kind of short-lived. Their legacy obviously remains, particularly also because of this Woodstock. Uh, the whole idea of like Wood- Woodstock music and art fair 
I didn't know that was the full name until I started doing this research. I thought it was just Woodstock, but it actually has. That's true. Yeah, Woodstock is kind of what it becomes known as later on. Yep. Because of where it was. But yeah, the three days, three days of peace and music, that's what they're, they're talking about. And it was, it was always meant to be. People always say, oh, this is a free concert. It was never meant to be a free concert. I think nope. that's something that it, be, it does become that. And that changes obviously into some of the Woodstocks afterwards, but it was never meant to be that. It was meant to be a profit making venture. I don't think we really want to get into like the people and stuff like that somewhat, but the people that were involved in it, you know, Michael Lang, Artie Cornfell, but they wanted to make money for this. And, you know, they did charge money at first and it was $18 to get in. Which is like nothing, right? Well, it was hundred um, something bucks they said in today's money, right? Yeah, like yeah, something dollars. Yeah, hundred thirty dollars, twenty four hours at the gate. Yeah. But you could actually like could only buy them in like um, record stores or by the mail. And they anticipated about fifty thousand people eventually going to this, twenty five to fifty thousand people, and you wind up getting over four hundred thousand. So it, it it picks up. One reason is really because of the um, people that they get there. Yeah, but let's talk about it. let's kind of get to that because this was so disorganized, and I don't even know how they managed to get this pull. They pulled this off in the first place. They well, yeah. didn't really, if you think about yeah, it. Yeah, like, that is true. <laughs> that is true. So uh, one out of the four men who actually threw this party, or just one of them, had any experience throwing a music festival, right? So some, earlier that yeah. year... Some. A, some, some indeed. So earlier that year, Florida-based promoter Michael Lang, out of the four, he organized a concert in Miami, and it actually drew about like 40,000 people, and it was considered like the largest concert in history up to that time. It, I mean, obviously... We're talking right now what happens in Woodstock is 400 to 500,000 people, and they thought 40,000 people is the largest. So that just shows you the comparison exactly, to what yeah. we're going up against. So Lang's friend, Artie Cornfield, uh, worked in Capitol Records, and they've never done anything of this size like Woodstock nothing ever close, before. Yeah, nothing close. So they partner up with two guys that have zero experience about music, John Roberts and Joel Roseman. Yes. Um, what could go wrong, right? Right. And these guys are Ivy League educated sons of super wealthy businessmen. They're basically there's like a pharmaceutical fortune in here. These guys have the money. That's where the capital comes from. And this group of four people came together and they're looking for, you know, like investment opportunities. So they agree that they're going to first of create a studio in Woodstock, New York. So this was originally not supposed to be a concert. It was supposed to be a studio that was built in this particular area, um, Woodstock, New York. And the reason for that is because it was a very popular artsy community in the you know New York's Ulster County. It was home to musicians Bob Dylan, the band, Jimi Hendrix, and other musicians kind of flocked to this area. It was kind of viewed as this like artsy community. Um, ironically, Bob Dylan actually rejects the invite to partake in Woodstock, but that's a, that's later. Um, so these four men, as they get together to open up this recording studio, they're like, well, we're not really going to make a lot of money with that. So why don't we just throw in like this large outdoor rock festival? And they're like, yeah, well, you know what? We wanted to name our studio, recording studio Woodstock. So let's just stick with Woodstock. They wanted to secure Woodstock, but actually the festival took place like 70 miles away from Woodstock. So let's get into how this was chosen and how they got to be where they are. Well, they tried going in a couple other places. Initially, they wanted to go um, at the Howard Mills Industrial Park in Wallkill, New York. That was where they wanted to go at first. But then the Wallkill officials basically, more like they got spooked, right? They kind of back out of the deal when they start seeing like the, the clientele that they wanted to. They basically they they don't want what's you know um, hippies. They don't want the hippies. They didn't they want, want the hippies. counterculture. They, they said, we don't want the counterculture. That's not what we signed up for. So they actually passed laws that eliminated the possibility of any concert being held there whatsoever. They just pass laws so there can be no concert on this land. So they start exploring a bunch of other uh, venues and none of them really pan out. And then it's getting closer and closer to the time. It's about only a month or so away. And then a dairy farmer by the name of Max um, 
Yuzger comes over. And I actually remember seeing a movie on this um, years ago called Selling Woodstock or Buying Woodstock. I remember, I remember going to see it with um, my girlfriend, now wife, at the time. It was one of those like, hey, you want to go see, like, see this movie, like test audiences, whatever. The movie wasn't particularly very good, but it kind of talked about the guy who lived by, right by this farm and how it mm-hmm. happened and anything like that. But he offered to rent them part of his land in like the White Lake area of New York, yep. of uh, Bethel, New York, right by the Catskill Mountains. And they were like, fine, let's just do it there because we, they had to just have something. So they pay what his asking price was. I don't think it was that much. And that's where they're going to have this concert. But but only a month away, it's kind of difficult to get all the info. You don't understand, and I don't even understand all the details, right, what you need to do to have a have a concert. Like and he's got no idea what they were doing. And they're going on an on – an, they have no idea what they're doing, and they're doing it on like an empty farmland. Yeah. And they've already advertised, so they have to have a place to do this. People were buying tickets already. It's kind of hard. And then they even talk about they're trying to get like the um, concession stands, the bathroom facilities, medical tents. You need to have all these things, performance pavilion. And they realize we never put up like gates. Or stage. Or, or, or stage or, or, yeah, yeah. Or, or ticket boots. And they were just like people were already showing up. And they're like, well, you know, we don't really have the time to put up the fencing and the gates and all the stuff. They still weren't ready. So Lang actually t- talks in an interview years later. He says, listen, you do everything you can to get the gates and the fences finished, but you have priorities. People are coming. You need to be able to feed them and take care of them and give them a show. So you have to prioritize. So that's when it really becomes a free concert. And once the, once the word gets out that it's a free concert, that's really what expands this from being like, you know, 20,000, 40,000 to 400,000. As soon as people find out they don't have to pay for it, now people start showing up Nuts. On, on huge numbers, on huge numbers. Yeah, three days before the actual event, they did not have a stage ready yet. No stage, yeah. no fencing, no tickets for three days before the event. So basically the builder, the construction foreman walked up to the four guys and he's like, all right, you guys have to pick. Like, what do you want? Like you want fencing, you want ticket booths, or do you want an actual stage? Like you got to pick one. And they're like, well, uh, obviously we need a stage. So that took precedence because of that. But there was so much hate in the neighborhood, even for Yasgar as well. People, again, this is Vietnam is happening after 1968, which is, you know, you have uh, assassinations, MLK, RFK, you have Vietnam, worst death ratio. And this hippie culture really kind of pits you know, the, the I don't want to say hawks and doves against each other, but really the conservative element, the silent majority that Richard Nixon calls them later on with the youth and the hippies kind of identify themselves through rock and roll music, right? Outrageous clothing, sexual license, illegal drugs, LSD, acid, marijuana. So this is like totally anti-establishment. So when this party's coming to be, in upstate New York, a lot of the local farmers are upset that this is happening because they're like, you know, there's there's so much conservative thought in the area that eventually all these farmers in the surrounding areas wind up suing. And these guys for like the next decade are basically paying off court wise all these fees to all these other farmers because that's how upset they were that this actually transpired in their neighborhood. This is a, a small town. They weren't ready for some of this. Because even though, like you said, about 400, 500,000 people made it there, there were over a million people, they think, kind of descended on this area, yep. descended on Woodstock, hoping to somehow get in. And they just didn't have the organization. People abandoned their cars on the highway. So that, so that causes like gridlock and just melee and things of that nature. The town itself wasn't ready. And But from what I heard from all the things is for the most part, it was very um, peaceful. Peaceful. All right. Yep. Um, so we'll, we'll get talk about security concerns, but like for the most part, everyone was getting along. And it wasn't fun because it was the first day was torrential downpour, right? Yep. So I was really seeing all these pictures just of muddy. They it didn't have obviously the 
proper sanitation, enough water for everybody, enough facilities for everybody. But then being in the 60s, people were just kind of like going along with it, I guess, a bit more. There was a lack of violence, especially for the large number of people. A lot of people were saying it was because of uh, the large number of psychedelic drugs being used. <laughs> That's one reason why <laughs> there was um, such a lack of violence. They were chill. They were chill. People were just yeah. kind of like, yeah, we're not promoting that at all. Don't get me wrong. But I guess that yes, mellowed no, no, no. people out enough with the music and stuff. But a lot of them, they're saying they were following with the mantra of just make love, not war. Although the rumor, just you know, like people say that there's supposedly eight different births at Woodstock that yeah, nothing's been that's proven. That's fake. Nothing been yeah. proven. Yeah, they don't think that was actually true. They said um, no births and was. They said maybe one one woman gave birth in a car in traffic to get to Woodstock, which was already miles away from Woodstock. So technically, no births in Woodstock. Yeah, and most of the um, most of the injuries were just food poisoning or uh, wounded bare feet and stuff like that. But there was one yeah. teenager who did die from getting run over by a tractor. He was like 17. He was uh, he was yeah. laying in his, um, he had like Tent a or, yeah, sleeping like a, bag. No, it was a sleeping, sleeping bag. bag. Sleeping and bag the tractor didn't see him and just drove over him. Ran him over, which is crazy. And then one person did die, they believe, of a drug-related death. And we'll talk, we talk about that. For all the amount of people, I'm not, we're not downplaying people dying at all, but it could have been much worse. Yeah. And we talk about the 99 Woodstock a little bit later. Things get uh, oh yeah, that's that was that's that get pretty that rough. Hard. But CIA yeah, security was limited. It was really just to the off duty police officers. Yeah, and even then, how do you control half yeah. a million people? Yeah, and, to keep an eye on half a million it wasn't easy, yeah. And the fact that it stayed somewhat organized and peaceful it was a testament really to this counterculture movement that they were able to kind of contain this. But the traffic, we, we kind of touched upon this before before we get into the actual festival and, and more or less what happens there, the traffic was so insane because when people, there's so many people flock to this area that once they hit traffic, they're like, all right, good enough. So they just parked their cars on yeah, the road. Yeah, they just left them. They just left, left them. them. And they just walked. And it basically at the end of the day too, by Monday when they were leaving, because this was a weekend, right? So it's Friday. When they were all leaving on Monday, the traffic also lasted for days because of the fact that people were still like, just walking back to their cars and you were you kind of couldn't go anywhere. One of our professors in college, Tom, I don't remember which one but he was at woodstock and he was actually talking about the fact that he like left his car and then he said that like when he came back his car like wasn't there well, and i was like oh that's well, interesting. yeah i mean <laughs> you leave your car in the middle of the road well yeah I but mean, so did like millions of other people right yeah you don't anyway. expect it to be there though. anyone could just come and take it i mean the cops were obviously I mean, they, they had to close it yeah, but, they had to close the New York Thruway. Like, they had to close a highway because it was so congested. Everyone was going to this thing. Yeah, exactly. It, it was a culture. Anyway, it's more people. And it spreads like wildfire, right? So more people talking about it, more people are going to start going. They want to yeah. see it, especially when they're hearing who some of the uh, performers are going to be, right? So 32 yeah. musicians um, eventually decide to come out. And again, some of, these, some of these you might know, some of these you don't. I'm sure if I ask like my dad or my uncle some of these names, they're going to know it. They probably have their records and stuff like that. But for... Yeah. Most casual people, or at least people not born during that time, I, I don't know these. Also, I'm not musically inclined to my musical uh, knowledge is Bruce Springsteen and Bon Jovi, but still nice, yeah. But also, if you look at the who was invited and didn't come, that's also a yes. very known list. Those, those names I actually recognize a little bit more, to be honest. Yeah, the people who yeah. they said, "Hey, come by," and they're like, "No." No, we don't want to do that. Like Led Zeppelin was supposed to go. Yeah. Rolling Stones refused. Simon and Garfunkel refused. Um, yeah, these are people we know. Yeah. Well, the Doors refused, Bob Dylan refused, Chicago. Uh, so uh, Beatles, apparently, but they were like, um, yeah, I think they and they were kind of anyway. breaking up. I don't think they would have gone anyway. But still, the, the list of who didn't go was like a who's who at the same time. First of all, they paid a lot of money for these acts, right? Like even Jimi Hendrix payday was like 200 
I think they said it was like two hundred thousand dollars or something like that, or equivalent. Oh, that much back then? Oh, probably equivalent. Equivalent too. today, yeah. yeah. For yeah. for one performance, for you know, like half hour performance, you wanted the equivalent of today's money, two hundred thousand dollars. Well, because it wasn't it wasn't easy to get to. Well, they had to helicopter them in. Did you see it that? Was, it was in the middle of a farm, so it's yeah. not going to be have like all the amenities that a lot of these rock stars and stuff are used to. Again, no one knew what it was going to be. Like later on, it's looked at as like this all this ultimate festival right the music how important that is but at the time it was just more of we want to go see this concert you want to perform here you know it was yeah. like one of those like uh big time concerts where you're getting the who's who of rock at the time sure you're getting a lot of yeah. big acts but it wasn't seen as this like groundbreaking event that i guess history later makes it i used to yeah. show students you know pictures of this like you said before and there's like the number of people and stuff like that. Yeah, I don't think they stuff. thought. I don't think these guys thought this was going to be in textbooks taught to uh, teenagers. No, that would become more or less a historical event. Yeah. Yep. So let's. I think kicks off. We're not going to go into every act, but I do think it's interesting in the first act because it does show the this organized aspect of this. So Sweetwater uh, was supposed to be the first scheduled performer, right? And they got stuck in traffic like everybody else. Everybody else. Yeah. So the organizers were like, "Uh, okay, we're supposed to get on. Supposed to start. Like we have nobody." So they selected this folk singer, Richie Heavens and they're like richie you got to hop on there on stage 5 p.m make this work right so he's like all right so you hopped on and he finished this thing by like an hour in and from the backstage the promoters are like no you got to keep on going like we still don't have the next act so then he played for the second hour he's eventually like running out of music so he starts um literally like starts doing covers of Beatles songs. Then he improvises some new songs that he like makes up. He was there for three hours. Yeah, just, um, just trying to make stuff like, because to. they didn't have anybody else. And then finally a U.S. Army helicopter from a nearby base. They like asked and begged somebody. And a U.S. Army helicopter chartered by these organizers brings the next performers rather um, to be able to perform because they couldn't get in so they started flying people in they sort of have to fly food in they have to fly performers in and out which all that costs money it's not like the army's just going to do it for free these people are actually going into massive debt after these four guys are going into massive debt paying for all these performances but also paying for upkeeping this festival for the one weekend well he's one of the so he's there and then sweetwater does eventually perform on the first day around 7 30 um, and then you have some other ones, people that are come on stage and do things. So at that first day, I mean, we have to go into all of them necessarily. I mean, it's up Wait, to you. Did you see this one though? That like all of the artists, well, not all, but a lot of the artists agreed because again, they're like, this is shady that they would actually play, but only if they got paid in cash before going on the stage. Yeah. Um, they got in there. They, they weren't going to accept anything. They're like, this is, sh- this is shady. This is shady. Yeah. It just doesn't look right. It's like rickety and stuff like that. Where are we doing here? So if you want us to do this, you know, we have to uh, be paid right so, now. Be- yeah. So again, people are saying this is love, happiness, peace, love. And yes, but this is capitalism. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. what this oh, really, yeah, yeah. that's what I, when I, when I look at this and definitely when we look at the later, some of the later Woodstocks, because it's like the name branding, basically, this is, this is capitalism. Like, I'm not trying to debunk it. I'm not trying to make Woodstock sound bad. I get all the other stuff, but at the end of the day, they, they didn't sound like they went out there for free. Like they wanted their no, money no, no. and they said, give it to me now, or I'll just leave. Like, and I'm fine with that because they all wanted to get out of there for the most part. There were several performers that per, uh, refused to go out when it was like pouring rain They're like, no, we'll go out another day. So a lot of the ones yeah. didn't come out the first one. Some did play through the rain, but other ones were just like, yeah, I'm not doing it. Because it wasn't even, it was like a downpour. Yeah. EMTs, they do have EMTs, uh, they, all volunteers, volunteer doctors, volunteer EMTs, volunteer nurses. And they had a medical tent at Woodstock just for that reason. And you did bring this up before. Most of it dealt with like drug issues, but not like overdose. So food poisoning, 
and wounded, as you mentioned earlier, bare feet because they're running a barefoot. Uh, there's also uh, miscarriages at Woodstock. I think wasn't there like seven? Eight, I heard. Eight, yeah. Eight, well, yeah, eight you think that could have been on the on the way there mostly? Yeah. Yeah. So there was an actual medical tent security, as you said. There's really no security. It was also banned because think who's organizing this and what this is representing this counterculture. Like you don't want the establishment in a sense. Idea with feeding them. There was a hog farm. Did you see that? Yeah, and they set up like they set up like a free tent there. They also put had a tent there just for help people who are freaking out from taking the psychedelic drugs. Yes, so they just just like just, to, just calm, to, like a calm down area. A calm down area. Just come here, sit. We'll watch you. You know, take your blood pressure and stuff like that, and just like I guess get through your trip there. You know, under adult under adult <laughs> under doctor supervision. Yeah, there was also a children's playground set up by this commune that was there. Uh, they started taking care of children, those that people that brought children with them. Free food kitchens. And eventually there was like a, a Jewish um, organization nearby that found out that it wasn't enough food. So they started making sandwiches and and basically flying them in using the military helicopter to kind of helicopters to bring in food. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present if you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. The most famous performance, ironically, was seen by hardly anyone. Yeah, that famous performance, obviously, at the end, right? Um, Jimi Hendrix. I want to say one that I saw that was kind of interesting before we get there was Grateful Dead, where you think Woodstock, think Grateful Dead. They actually performed um, the song Turn On Your Love Light for over Mm -hmm. 50 minutes. Nuts. So they play, they played that same song for over fifty minutes, and you can't obviously you know hear that and everything. But yeah, the most famous one was probably the one that Jimi Hendrix, right? Yeah. Um, he went on the third day. Yeah, he said in his contract that he had to be the last one, and it sucks because he would have a lot more people would have seen him. But he was supposed to go on Sunday night, but it was delayed. There was rain and other things, and all these other acts were taking too long. So Jimi Hendrix doesn't go on until Monday morning. When he goes on. He actually took the stage at 9 a.m. on Monday. By then, they said it was only about twenty-five to 30,000 people left yeah, out of the yeah. half a most million. Of the pe- most of the people left by then. Yeah. Yep. And even then, they said they like people stayed just to see him. And then a lot of them just kind of even like during his performance left because he had this clause that said, I need to be the last one to perform. And most people actually missed his you know famous Wait. rendition of Star Spangled Banner. Yeah. Well, it's only 9 a.m. to 11.10. So it wasn't it was early in the morning for the most yeah. part. Yeah, and most of this stuff was happening on a Saturday in yeah. pouring rain. Yeah, there was like a pond there, and everyone's like skinny dipping. I mean, this was well, it was know. it was it was in just water too. That's all like feces and pieces of uh. sanitation couldn't handle there and stuff like that. So it wasn't the uh, it was a mud pit, and that's really the media coverage. That's something I think we should talk about. Pete. It's like the media coverage. There wasn't much media coverage immediately on the scene. Yeah. Like there wasn't like reporters and stuff like that, and like live streams, obviously, but things like that nature. Most of it was just saying how it was a um, a hippie fest. And that yep. it was like a nightmare. And the, I think the New York Times had an article called Nightmare in the Cascals yeah. because it was all just like all these hippies came to this place. Look at this. You know, it wasn't about the music and stuff. Then it was just like 
300,000 hippies showed up and they just made a mess out of this farm area up in up in the Catskills. That's basically what they talked about. Coverage starts to become more positive like later on after fa- after the fact. The way that these guys made their money, because they lost money initially, right? They actually well, yeah. cost them double what they made from this uh, event. And, but what really kind of made the money was a documentary, right? The yes, 1970s yeah. documentary, which I think won – didn't it win an award? I think uh, I think it won an Academy Award. Yeah, it won an Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature. And it was inducted and eventually into Library of Congress National Film Registry. So that's how big of a deal it was. But anyway – Documentary film was filmed. That was one of the four guys of the promoters of the festival, Artie Kornfeld. He's the one that thought about this. And he's like, all right, I'm going to talk to Warner Brothers, which he does. And he asks for money to film this. And Warner Brothers like, is like, all right, everybody says no. And Warner Brothers is like, all right, fine, you could do it. So he gets the money to put this together, about $740,000 in today's money, about 100000 in money back then. And this documentary actually helps save Warner Brothers. Uh, the company was on the verge of going out of business, bankrupt. And this documentary, because of all the accolades, because afterwards, remember, as you just said, like, media was kind of like get warming up to the idea. And then before they warmed up to it, it was over. So this was an event that was talked about, you know, for years going forward. I mean, we're still talking about it today, but the documentary came out a year later and people were generally like, all right, what was this about? Like, I, I need to know. So they watched this documentary. And that money from this documentary is what eventually made money for those four promoters. As I mentioned before, a lot of it wound up going to pay. Oh, yeah, the fix it, the fix everything up. They needed bulldozers to fix all like the damage yeah. and stuff like that to the land and to the farms and stuff like that. They also, I believe, they also released um, albums, right? Yep, every like ten years, twenty years, so on and so forth. Yeah, there, yeah. There's been a bunch of other documents documentaries about it i know that but it was also like albums of that had some music actually from the festival they said the original one a lot of you just hear people yelling and stuff. you hear the rain so it's not like the best music quality obviously yeah. but it's out there you can get it well think of it this way they spend 3.1 million which is about 15 million in today's money on woodstock those four guys and it took in about 1.8 million right and they wasn't until by the time they paid all the lawsuits and clearing it up and everything else they actually didn't start making money until like early to mid 80s. And this was in 69. That's when they started to actually make profit, profit from, from this it. event. And even like by then, most of it came from documentaries and these records that you speak of. You know? Yeah, selling, selling the music. Yeah. Like, it's, again, it's the nostalgia factor. It's the, because it became such an event that it made money. Right? And that's really, I guess, one of like some of the legacy of this. Yeah. Like, what do you think the legacy of Woodstock really is, Pete? Like, I mean, well, I was going to touch about something that actually could be a good segue for that. Uh, one of the guys that filmed that award-winning documentary was a very, very young Martin Scorsese. Yeah, I heard that. I saw that. Which is kind of cool. I mean, I don't know if you a legacy of this. I, well, I, I mean, like, what does it really show? Like, I don't like. Is you were here like the legacy of it, and like, was it like there is a um, there is a pavilion there now? It's like a, it's like an art center, the Beth. The Bethel Wood Center for the Arts is, yeah. is there now, the actual place where Woodstock took place, and they have concerts and stuff like that. There's a museum, 1960s museum well, this there. Is, this is kind of gets me because the locals were so against it back in the 60s. Yeah, but, but now it's, it's like a major – made so much – yeah, it's an economic money, yeah, boom for them today. Yeah, that's what we're going back before. Like, it's an example of capitalism. Yeah. You know, so it's not really what they want. I don't, yeah, I don't know. But you think Woodstock, you think of festival, you think of this piece of, I think Woodstock really sums up the 60s, you know, that era. Like it was like the close of it, 
1969, you know, the counterculture. Well, they start calling it the Woodstock generation, which I think yeah. that if you have to it, look it, at it, the legacy becomes of it. An, it becomes an adjective to describe that time period. Yep. You know what I mean? Yep. It's like a physical, but it's also something you can look at that is like a physical representation, a visual representation of that time period. Like, I do think it has a lot of historical meaning. Well, also the Peanuts character, Woodstock, which started appearing in 66 in the cartoons, uh, did not really get a name, Woodstock. Until That's after that. Yeah. Like you don't know that's the bird that follows Snoopy around, right? Yes. Woodstock? Yeah. Okay. Just, just making people sure. like, you know what I mean? Like, he was there, but he had no name. He had no name, and they started to call him. They call he him, became Woodstock. Call him Woodstock after that. Not know that. And also, I, I do find it amazing that in the grand scheme of things, like, this was done fairly peacefully. And that's what really amazes me, because when you start looking at the numbers here, so Bethel, because they were feeding 500,000 people, right? When you start looking at it, it was considered the, at the, at that moment the third largest city in New York State, which has New York City in it. Yeah. Right. That's how many people came to this one farm. Oh, yeah, I began forget to mention that it was actually declared a disaster area, right, because of the yes. rain and because of the mud and lack of food and drinking water. That New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller was like, like we have to like stop this. We have to break this up. He actually wanted to send the military and to break it up, but he was talked out of it by John Roberts, one of the organizers. He talked yeah. him out of it. He's like, fine, but like you have to make sure it ends on that third day. Like we're not yeah. letting this go longer. And that was one reason why too they had to make sure it, and you know, it was just became so destroyed. You know. So that legacy's over, and future generations think they could do it again. Yeah, I think that's an important tip. I think that I think that's part of the uh, the legacy, also, right? Is that there's yep. going to be these other Woodstocks that uh, take place, and that probably are a lot a little more less lesser known, right? Yeah, I mean the two main ones that are known are I remember both ninety four and ninety nine. Well, there are other ones, right? There is a seventy nine one, right? Yep. There's an eighty nine one, but I think the main one that we can those are small. One is called like. It's like they're not even in Woodstock, right? They're in different places. Yes. But they kind of just get the name, the ideas. Maybe again, they are, are New York yeah. State. Yeah. But it was like a different type of place. But I think the first big one, the first one that really have it was the Woodstock 94, right? It was held in 1994. Yeah, yeah. The 25th anniversary. If you look at the poster, it looks exactly like the original poster, like the doves on the guitar. It says two more days of peace and music, right? Yeah. So it was first a feature to like, you know, the, the, like that. It's really like Woodstock part two. Right, and it was going to be August thirteenth and fourteenth. On um, you see how the tickets went up, right? One hundred thirty-five dollars. Yeah. And the weather was hot and dry on Friday, but early Saturday afternoon the storms rolled in, and the same thing. It just turns into a field of mud. Yeah. It turns into a field of mud. So it took place on Winston Farm in New York, about hundred miles north of New York City. Did you see that three hundred fifty thousand? It was a big event. I remember hearing about this too. And three deaths of the festival were confirmed. Uh, one unidentified forty-five-year-old male died. Uh, diabetes complications. Then there was someone died from a, a, a spleen. Remember a ruptured spleen, a 20-year-old? Yes, but overall, about 5,000 people were treated at medical tents and 800 were taken to hospitals. But still considering that 350 people showed up and three people died. And yeah, again, I mean, I'm not saying that's okay, but I'm saying in the grand scheme of things, okay, like it wasn't that bad. Major issues, security was also an issue, obviously. Well, that was a big thing. They just, again, there's just too many people there. And this is one reason, this is the stuff from the first Woodstock, and particularly this Woodstock 94, that so many people were still able to get in because of just a massive number. That's where it really starts for the one that's going to happen after this 99. If that happens, they're losing money, right? And yep. this is still a concert. The promoters want to make money with this. So they still have to find some way to basically, you know, make money. And since... These all these people showing up, getting in for free, is cutting to their profits. 
they're going to try to find ways to change that. But for the most part, it was pretty Calm, safe ish. and pe- peaceful atmosphere. Yeah. I think one of the crazy things was on um, the first day, the um, this band by the name of Jackal took the stage, and the lead singer Jesse James Dupree was like drinking whiskey, smoking marijuana. I poured it on the crowd, right? Yeah, we had put it on the crowd. Then he started shooting a rifle up in the air and um, playing with a chainsaw. He winds up cutting his hand really bad, wiping blood all over his forehead and stuff like that. So he had some like well, people getting memorable. a little bit insane and so yeah, it's memorable. But yeah, a lot more people. They had some like other ones who were here the first one, Crosby, Stills and Nash, um, some newer Aaron bands. Smith bands was there, Metallica Aaron was Smith there. Metallica, yeah, Nine Inch, Nine Inch Nails, Nails. Okay, yeah. um, your favorite person, Cheryl Crow, right? So you have all these. You have, <laughs> Stop. You have, Where did that come from? <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> I know you're a big Sheryl Crow fan, Pete. It's okay. All right. Yeah, totally. Uh, totally. Um, oh, salt my God. and pepper, right? All those good people. Uh, but Sheryl Crow. This- Where does that – okay, you know what? I get it. This is the, this is for me comparing you to Stalin last week. I get it. Well, right, yes. Fine. Yeah. I, I fine. I am that. indeed a big Sheryl Crow fan. There's, there's, uh, there's yes. nothing wrong. Green Day was there, right? <laughs> <laughs> Green Day was there. See, a lot of these notable performers um, and things of that nature that are there. And like I said, but the big difference with this one, too, is it was broadcast on TV. Yep. Right? So the footage was be used for uh, home packaging, documentaries about it. MTV made it pay-per-view. Okay? So you yep. could buy it for whatever number it was, forever, like $50, wherever it was, and watch it live for the next two days, like a live uh, stream, more or less, for people understand that. So it was very popular. It did very well. All right, so they had one in, like we said before, they had one in 79, 89. Now they're having another one in 94 for 25 years. So because it did so well, they're like, all right, we should do this again. And we should do it every five years. That was the plan. You know, but we also didn't talk about some of the declined invitations because this is interesting too. Before we move on to 99. Yeah, you had some interesting people declined. Yeah, I'm right, So Johnny Cash said no. Guns N' Roses said no. Um, Allison Chain said no. But Bob Dylan said yes. And he was introduced with uh we waited 25 years to hear this ladies and gentlemen mr bob dylan since he you know he said no the first time around he actually did show up this one but and johnny cash was gonna go but he declined because he originally said he was gonna go but then they found out he wasn't gonna perform on the main stage and he was like well then i'm not going rightfully so he's johnny cash it's, it's johnny cash i know he's like no if you're gonna tell crow, me i like somebody but... i he's no sheryl crow but actually <laughs> I, I i actually am a big johnny cash fan um but yeah sheryl crow totally anyway so let's get into 99 because this one is, I feel like, the reason why we're not having any more Woodstocks. No, they already said this is why there's no more Woodstocks. <laughs> and there's um, there's a good documentary. It came out not too long ago. I remember watching it actually on Netflix, Netflix right? yeah. that talked about Woodstock 99. This one, I actually remember watching like coverage of it on MTV one. I'm like, oh, let me just watch some of this. I had it on in the background probably when I was doing something else. I was like a you know junior in high school, whatever it was. And then seeing all the chaos erupting because it was all like live on MTV. At the time, oh, the MTV people right? literally left. Oh, they were like, we're out. And they actually said, they were like, we're out of here. They dropped the microphone and be like, we're leaving now. And you still yeah. saw like literally explosions <laughs> happening. So let's talk a little bit about Woodstock yeah. 99. Good, which way, to gonna be, Good way to finish. Good way to finish. Right, going to be held um, July 22nd to July 25th, 1999 in Rome, New York. All right. Yeah. It was this second large scale music, the kind of like part three. Of the original Did you see Woodstock that? that was, it was done on the Air Force Base. Yeah. And right away, that was just a bad mistake. It's yeah. done on, on Grimace Air Force Base, roughly 100 miles from the original Woodstock site. And he had over 250,000 people over four days. But the problem, they wanted to have him this, on this military base because it was already fenced off, right? Yeah. So this is great. We can, it's already fenced in. We, we can, can have it we, here. Yeah, we're gonna put, everyone has gonna, to pay a ticket. We're, yeah, everyone's got to pay a ticket. It was a place, it was a recently retired Air Force Base. You used to have B-52 bombers. So it was yeah. like definitely big. But they didn't realize that. I guess they did. There wasn't much shade there at all, which is going to be a major problem we'll talk about. But also, you ever go on asphalt on a hot day? Well, yeah. 
it doesn't it gets hot so you can't camp out on you have all this sunlight beaming you know it's 100 degree temperatures beaming on hot asphalt warming it up even at night it didn't cool off and didn't have enough places where people could sit so it just started burning people and then you get the um capitalism and everything going on there with the high the price gouging eight dollars for a bottle of water and stuff like that because they couldn't bring food in and out which becomes a major issue and then people just start to um flip out yeah basically. i mean we'll overpriced food terrible sanitation it literally smelled like crap um led to massive sickness so many cases of sexual oh, harassment and rape oh, even yeah gang rape, rape. actually yeah. seeing it like they actually was one performer i didn't yeah I, stop so he, wait it was like, stopped, hey. like someone it stopped that girl like someone helped that girl right yeah. now we need help here and people were yeah. like oh well it was just like it's just crazy and this was all because they wanted to make sure people didn't get in for free like that was nice. one reason why it was kind of uh what was going on here but there was a lot of extra money they only you see though pete there was a lot of like um argument about how how many people were actually there because if they went over a certain amount they have to give more money to the town or Onita County. So they kind of like purposely said, no, there's only some. So there's still a debate on how many people are actually there, how many tickets were actually I mean, Carson sold. Daly, you know, who was the, the MTV guy in 1999, yeah. he literally was quoted saying, I thought I was going to die. And he yeah. felt like, I felt like I was in another country during a military conflict. That's how bad it got out of hand. We know, obviously, as I mentioned, it's sexual harassment, rapes, uh, sickness, sanitation issues, food, hotness. But then you have the fires because ultimately that's what starts happening here. Okay, right? so we have to cover the context of how these fires like basically happen. Yep. So even before this, a lot of the acts, Kid Rock and some of the other acts, were saying, "All right, throw all these, throw, throw, throw stuff on the stage." Right. So you have yep. you have that. You had um, Fred Durstlin's biscuit. He gets up there, he starts jumping up and down. Again, he's not saying tear stuff down, but he's getting like, let's go crazy, let's go wild. It's a lot of the people they're doing drugs. There's a lot more of this youth fact. A lot of young people there. They start like, I think they do knock down one of like the towers at yep. one point, right? and they're getting angry. They're knocking down the porta potties because it's just not enough. There's not enough of them. Uh, there's some water fountains by, by law they have to have them, but they're lined. So then the people break break the pipes, and the water's just spewing everywhere, and they're drinking from that. So they're getting un- a lot. I love of, how, a lot like of there's cases. not enough toilets, so let's destroy the ones that we have. Um, what's happened with the fires was that there was um, this was shortly after the events of Columbine High School, right? Mm-hmm. The uh, horrible shooting in 1999, and they uh, what happened was there was a group of people known as the Center to Prevent Youth Violence, and they distributed candles to people at their booth that day, and they're saying later on tonight we're going to do a candlelight visual for the victims of Columbine, right? To be held during the um, Red Hot Chili Peppers performance of the song Under the Bridge. This had this was never approved by the firefighters. It had to yep. be there. So during, when the band is playing, people start to light the candles. All right, some of the candles are then used to start these larger bonfires, and because there's literally a sea of plastic bottles everywhere, people start throwing these plastic water bottles used as fuel for the, the fuel for the fire, and it starts to spread all over the place. Some of it actually on the stages and stuff like that. They actually have to be um, put out, put out, extinguished. And then the audio, audio tower actually caught on fire and the fire department was called to put out and they just didn't come. They just refused to call. They're like, there's no way we're getting there. So, But isn't it – so the band is actually blamed for this because they said that – first of all, they were singing a cover of Jimi Hendrix's song Fire. That so was later like, on. Well, that, came were, out, that, that, came, that came afterwards, yeah. Right. Didn't they say they were like inciting the riot? Well, they said that it looked like apocalypse now out there. And then the fire started to yeah. escalate into like vandalism and stuff like that. And yeah, ATMs were tipped actually, over. Money was taken. Over. Well, people were just fed up with everything that was going on there. You know, so they just kind of rioted. And then um, the band was – and then later on they were blamed because they started singing that song. Fire. Hendrix covered the song Fire. 
but they're like, you know, what do you want us to do? We be, That was actually, they didn't do that because of the fires. They say later on, they were actually asked by Henshaw's sister to play that in honor of him at Woodstock. And they said, yes. So. Nuts. MTV, literally. And MTV, MTV leaves. They just basically say here, here's the actual quote from uh, Kurt Loiter. He described the scene. He says, it's dangerous to be around. The scene was scary. There were just waves of hatred bouncing around the place. It was clear we had to get out of there. It was like a concentration camp to get in. You got frisked to make sure you're not bringing any water or food that would prevent you from buying their outrageously priced boot, uh, goods. You wall around in garbage human waste. There was a, a palpate of mood of anger. So they, they just leave. They just like, we are done. You actually, things actually explode. Propane tanks from the, some of the trailers actually blow up. You know what gets me though? You said Curtis Loader. I mean, I remember Curtis Loader, obviously MTV. We grew up on that. He is 77 years old. Well, that just shows how old we are. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh my God. But like, anyway. we, were te- we were teenagers when this happened. Like, I'm saying, I remember yeah. watching this. I'm like, wow, MTV is actually leaving right now. And you're just seeing like all these fires and stuff like that and just being like, wow, that's that's crazy. And there was riots. Or the police showed up. And they arrested that's what it is. Eventually, people. state troopers, 700 they, state troopers showed up and they're like, we're shutting this down. Yeah, they have, they have to stop. And it was the end of the festival anyway. But it was just like, people were just fed up. And it wasn't everybody. We're not saying that. But it, it did get out of control very quickly. And it, it, most people said they, they, that they did this because they were just, you know, fed up with whatever that was going on. That they were thirsty. They were hot. You know, and they just were letting out all this anger that bowled up for the next couple of days. They actually tear down these walls that were called peace walls. Which basically, it was the uh, plywood walls that, that keep people out of the festival that didn't pay. And they just ripped those down and start burning <laughs> start burning those, too. Nuts. And it, again, it took three weeks to clean up the site. Yeah, they said uh, New York New York State Department of Health reported 5,162 medical cases related. Yeah, this is, and afterwards, the National Organization for Women now, right, uh, winds up making a protest and gathering outside the New York offices. Of yeah, because, because of all the sexual assault. Sexual violence, violence. Yeah. yeah. It's often called the day the music died. That's what the San Francisco Examiner called it because there wasn't going to be a Woodstock after this. There was some talk, right? I did see some stuff on a Woodstock 50. Did you see that, Pete? I did, but then that's not. But it was they were in two night. It was going to be held on 2019 in Maryland, but it never really got yeah, a series no. of permits and production issues. Uh, all the artists that said they were going to do it just kind of canceled, and then it just died out. And one thing was really the fear of something like this happening again. It was just too big of a thing. It was going to cost too much money, and they were going to have yeah. to wait on the back end to make up their money. And then it was just it just wasn't going to be um, wasn't going to be worth it. I don't think the, this one or the 94 or 99 is going to make it to textbooks. I mean, it didn't make it to textbooks because I... No, it, it's a black eye. It's one talking about... It really showed, about, again, like the dark side of it all. Like the, when the first one was about like supposed love and togetherness, whatever you peace. want to call it. And peace. Again, peace, war. We're yeah, peace, war. love, war. But it's other one. It was more of just like, all right, we're going to use that name that has become like such like a... Cultural like icon, a, really. A, a, a cultural icon, like a known commodity. Right, but oh, right, you're at Woodstock, right? You have to get. Let's get the T-shirts, right? Let's get the yeah. the water bottle, the souvenirs and stuff. I almost made it into like a again capitalism, like a Disneyland type of place, where you're just charging yeah, like you a parody the, of itself the, again. These, it's, huge, it's, these huge prices, and they kind of missed the whole feeling of it, and they just got out of control. Police had to come in and put it down, and it got lucky. I mean, it was bad. It could have been a lot worse. They, yeah. they describe it as being a war zone, basically. If you go on YouTube, look at these fires, look at the explosions, like the fact that. No one else got hurt during those things is just luck. I mean, I think that pretty much sums up our uh, 
venture into talking about the history of Woodstock. Again, the first one was a cultural phenomenon. It was part of the counterculture movement. It has its place in history because it's it symbolized a generation at a specific time in history. Uh, the other ones, 94 and 99, they're not so cultural. They're more of an event. Yeah, you want to say, look, look, I was there. Yes. Right? Yeah, so, yeah. Which is nothing inherently wrong with that. It's yeah. just like the, the mindset was was not was not necessarily um, the same, but you know yeah. you got your Cheryl Crow Pete, so you can't you can't complain. <laughs> anyway, all right, guys. Well, thank you so much for tuning in once more. We do appreciate it. Uh, if you need to find us, you can find us at www.historyteacherstalkingpodcast.com. Uh, you could also check out the Evergreen website. We're on there as well, and you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, um, Instagram, and. Uh, please feel free to email us with any questions or suggestions. We appreciate those, and we'll see you guys next week. Stay safe, everybody. I hope everyone enjoyed our podcast, and if you would like to email us, you can do so at historyteacherspodcast at gmail.com. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go.